0: To return to this afternoon, we are fortunate to have one of your Thomas's dear friends, Arnold Rampersad, to introduce him. Arnold is the Sarah Hart Kimball Professor of Humanities Emeritus. He was for many years a member of the English Department and served as Senior Associate Dean for Humanities in the School of Humanities and Sciences. Thank you, Arnold, for doing the honors.
1: Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Uh, I have to um, confess that uh, a lot of what I'm about to say is contained in the handout that you've received, so I hope you haven't yet had a chance to look at the handout, so a lot of what I say will then seem to be almost revelations. Um, Ewe Thomas is obviously that rare individual who merits not one, but two introductions when he speaks in public, otherwise David would not have asked him to choose an additional person uh, to help introduce him here. In any event, I'm happy Professor Thomas asked me to be that second introducer, which is the way I prefer to see myself uh, this evening, this afternoon, because there are few colleagues for whom I have as great a respect. I first met Ewart um, and Odette in 1973, almost uh, 45 years ago. Uh, I'd come to give a job talk as an early term assistant professor elsewhere, UVA, and he had been here in psych for over a year, just over a year. Uh, I hope he will tell the story himself about coming here from the sweltering winter <laughs> in in ann arbor um, at, uh, <laughs> and uh, driving up uh, riding up a car with a in a car up Palm drive and seeing Memchu ahead of him and the hills in in the background and falling in love with Stanford absolutely. I think he said not, he was not the first person to say it, this is the place. Uh, For him it was a fateful step on his rich road of life. Starting out as a prize-winning high school boy at Queens College in Guyana, uh, Professor Thomas earned his B.Sc. in mathematics in 1963 at the then youthful University of the West Indies in Mona, Jamaica. He could have gone at that point because of uh, what he had won as a student to Oxford or Cambridge, uh, the normal destinations for uh, a scholars, high school winners of his uh, of his. Uh, uh, level of distinction, but he chose instead to go to the local uni- university, uh, which had been founded around 1948. Anyway, four years after uh, earning his B.Sc. in Maths at UE um, uh, he completed his Ph.D. in Statistics at the University of Cambridge. After further study at University College London, he made the momentous decision to leave the UK and seek an academic position in the US. I'm sure he will tell us something about that, or at least I hope so. He landed at Michigan, where Stanford's eager recruiters found him in their search for worthy candidates for its already celebrated psych department. Stanford was different in those days. Uh, 1973, 74, as most of you can recall. The quad was not yet tiled over, made ready for fundraising events, uh, but still dirt and gravel, which I think of as a wonderful look, uh, a more authentic look than the tile. Uh, The the oval was not manicured, uh, lawn, uh, but bush. Uh, Maybe not so wonderful. These were part of Stanford's antique charm, but I'd say that not all of Stanford's antique charms were truly charming or truly appropriate to a university on the rise and a nation in in a state of change. Arriving at a critical juncture in its history, Professor Thomas proceeded to play a notable role in assuring that the goals of liberal change pursued by a succession of wise presidents and other Stanford University leaders were achieved with minimum pain and maximum effectiveness. The number of faculty of color was small, even minuscule, but by design its quality was high. In this forward-looking and challenged company, Ewa Thomas was an excellent fit. He was a poised, compelling presence both within psychology but also in the larger university. Because of the quality of his mind and his work, he stood out. Uh, In 1983, he became chair of his department. He then became an associate dean in the School of Humanities and Sciences uh, before serving from 1988 to 1993 as dean of the entire school. As a teacher, he established an extraordinary record uh, in a department justly celebrated, even to this day, for its compelling instructors. Uh, over the years, thousands of students, most of them majoring outside psychology, attended his finally constructed gateway course in statistics. He would have 400 in one year. I think I had 400 over my 40 years. Um, His skill and devotion were recognized in 2002, 2002, I should say, not 2002, 2002, when the ASSU gave him its Distinguished Teaching Award. In 2013, he won the Bass University Fellowship in Undergraduate Education. Finally, in 2016, he won the prestigious Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching. For all his high positions, Ewe Thomas remained the epitome to me uh, of modesty, kindness, and inclusiveness. If he had strong feelings about certain political matters, he believed even more strongly in the need for faculty and students alike to maintain the highest standards of excellence. Uh, I am truly grateful to him for offering to share with us an account of how he negotiated the long road he has come, a negotiation from which so much of us at Stanford have benefited for so long. Professor Thomas.
2: Good afternoon, men. Very good. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm keeping my glasses on because I'm quite astounded as to how many of you have shown up. Uh, It's really good to see you, uh, friends of long-standing. I wouldn't say old friends because of the ambiguity of meaning. Uh, uh, Thank you, uh, uh, David, for inviting me to address the emeriti community. Uh, and Thank you, Arnold, for your kind and generous introduction. I don't know if you know that Arnold was a, an actor of note in Trinidad and Tobago, and you can see the dulcet tones coupled with the pacing. Uh, this, is, uh, this is vintage Arnold. He's also one of the premier biographers uh, in the country. So you will understand why I was tempted to ask him not simply to introduce me but to actually give the main talk uh, because I, I would be happy to go back and sit down and, and, and listen to the expert. So I asked a lot of people for guidance on what I might say today, starting with my dear wife, Odette Thomas. Then I went to my oldest sister because there were a few details I needed Mormia Lynch, she lives in Arizona. I spoke also to David and Arnold and many others in the room. Uh, Eve Clark, uh, my, my neighbor, Gordon Bower, my walking buddy, Larry Horton, where is Larry? I saw him. Larry, yes, my um, colleague on the board of Theatre Works, uh, and Iris Breast, who actually audited this Gateway course that you mentioned in um, 19-something-something when she was associate general counsel uh, here. And the consensus was that you uh, would probably want to hear what may have pushed me in an academic direction, and secondly, what may have fueled the journey from a small village in Guyana to the chair of the number one psychology department in the country. We used to say in the world, do you remember Gordon? Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, in the country, because the Europeans have a funny approach, a more philosophical approach to, 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 to psychology, whereas we believe in behavior and measuring stuff, you know. and that suited my, my orientation. Anyhow, best department in the country to avoid, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, to the Office of Dean of Humanities and Sciences, uh, at Stanford, USA. So I've titled my remarks, Vryhead Village, Guyana, to Stanford University, USA Tentative Reflections on the Role of Chance and Helpful People. The tentative is there because I find that mining my life for insights is difficult given that I have no training for it, uh, and because I'm never sure that I know the full context of past events. Sometimes, therefore, insights have to be revised in the light of new information, usually from older relatives and colleagues. Let me illustrate this point with the story of how I got hired uh, to Stanford in 1972. I arrived at the University of Michigan as an assistant professor in the summer of 1970. And that same summer, I went to a conference in mathematical psychology, which was my area of research. At the conference, I met Richard Atkinson, we call him Dick Atkinson, who was editor of the Journal of Mathematical Psychology, and he was chair of the department at Stanford. I had a paper on the review at the journal. And so that was the basis for good discussion with uh, Dick and myself. The next summer I again met Dick at a conference Uh, and then in November I was invited to give a talk at Stanford. It turned out that Dick had organized uh, that talk. When I came I found out that they were thinking of hiring me. The department was very welcoming. The visit went well, and there was an offer. I accepted, came here in 1972, and things have worked out very well here for me and my family. Now, I have told this story many, many times to my family and my friends, so they're keenly aware of my debt to Dick Atkinson for recruiting me. Four years ago, Dick, Odette, and I were riding in a San Francisco taxi, going back to our hotel after a party. It was actually Gordon's 80th birthday party, which he had had in his 80th year, 81st year, and 82nd year. He had so many friends that they kept wanting to celebrate it. So this was the third 80th birthday party that we had uh, for Gordon. And Dick was telling us of the talk he, Dick, had given that morning to the Association for Psychological Science. In the talk, he summarized the history of mathematical psychology at Stanford, noting the pivotal role played by Patrick Suppes in hiring mathematical psychologists such as Gordon Bauer and Ewart Thomas. So I assumed that Dick was just being modest. And so I said to him, but Dick, you hired me, not Pat. So Dick replied, you were. Th- I should know, and I'm telling you, it was Pat. So the next day, I called Pat to thank him for his advocacy more than 40 years earlier. We met for lunch at his home, and we covered a lot of ground in a session that explained a lot. Also, the session could not have been more timely, happening as it did just four months before Pat's death. Some of you know that philosophy was Pat's home department, but he was a vital presence in psychology, economics, education, and statistics. And even though he was not in my department, I always had the feeling that he was especially interested in my career. And now after that lunch, I understood why, and I could connect. A few of the dots. For example, soon after I came here, he encouraged me to join a project on teaching mathematics and logic to kids using uh, computers. This was at his company, Computer Curriculum Corporation. Alas, with the myopia of youth, I declined. Then years later, he encouraged me to submit my work on fairness to the first issue of Social Choice and Welfare, a journal devoted to social choice and welfare issues and of which he was a founding editor. Of course, the thing got published because Pat sent it in. Then even later, after he sold his company, CCC, in the early 1990s for many millions, this is the same company, by the way, I had spurned 20 years earlier. He donated a significant amount to fund a suite of endowed professorships in h and I was dean at the time, and so we had a few meetings with the lawyers for both sides to sort out the details of unit trusts and related issues. And throughout these exchanges, you couldn't really call them negotiations because Pat was giving the money. I had the sense that he wanted me uh, to, 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 to get more credit than I deserved for this unprecedented gift. Now, after my initial surprise at learning about Pat's role, I was happy that Dick told me about it. And this led me to think about the people who might not be our direct helpers, but who can give us information to properly understand our lives. I want to call these people our meta-helpers, for without the wider context they provide, no amount of unaided reflection will get us to the truth about our lives. So in this sense, my reflections this afternoon are subject to revision through future input from my better helpers, some of you of whom are in the room. So with this disclaimer out of the way, let me go back to Vryhead and recall some of the many helpful people and chance events that have shaped my life. There were seven of us children in my childhood home at Brighthead, six sisters and I. And we remember it as a happy home. Our mother was the warm, easygoing parent, and our father was the disciplinarian. They both insisted on fair play and respect for each other and for everybody else in the village. This was one of those villages where if you don't say good morning, they tell you, you know, little boy, why you don't say good morning? Or they tell your father that you steward didn't say good morning. And that's an occasion for discipline. He was a headmaster at a primary school in a nearby town. He insisted on Saturday lessons in arithmetic and grammar. We had to use the Queen's English whenever he was at home. When he went away, (sighs) now you could talk like you want to talk. And I remember my father being quite zealous in responding to my behavioral transgressions because, as he put it, he didn't want me to become an educated rascal. He had that concept, and, and, and this was the last thing Ewart was gonna become. And he was gonna... When I was nine, I took the scholarship exam under my father's instruction. This exam is also called the 11 plus, or the common entrance exam, and it determined who would get the handful of scholarships to attend Queen's College in Georgetown, the best high school in the country. I failed the exam, whereupon A group of my father's friends, all of them black headmasters, descended on our home to remonstrate with my father. They were focused, this group, on their sons much more than on their daughters. And they had an informal principle that nobody should coach his own son for the scholarship exam. So they told my father, do you see now why You shouldn't coach your own son, I failed the exam. One of them, Mr. Henry, then said, Arthur, you prepared my son for this exam. It's now my turn to to coach your son. And so I was sent to live with Mr. Henry's family for about four months in an even more remote village in Guyana. (laughs) But I passed the exam the next year. After the results came out, my father told my mother that he didn't have any relatives in Georgetown. Remember, he was a country boy and there's this suspicion of things complex in the city. And he felt that um, I couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle it. He didn't want me to live with strangers. He also raised the perennial issue of our limited finances. But the group of headmasters intervened yet again. They reminded him of the plan. The boy would pass scholarship, then he would go to QC, and then he would get a Guyana scholarship. One of them, Mr. Patterson, actually got his son, James, who worked in Georgetown, to find the family, the Gibbons, who took me in for the seven years of high school. I entered Queen's College in September 1953, a fateful year in Guyana's political history, and one that set the stage for the education my generation would receive inside and out of the curriculum. Chedi and Janet Jagan, and Forbes Burnham were the leaders of a mass movement that was embraced by the majority of the two major ethnic groups, Afro-Guyanese, the descendants of enslaved Africans, and Indo-Guyanese, the descendants of indentured laborers from India. Even though the party leaders espoused communist and socialist rhetoric, they persuaded Winston Churchill's government to grant the colony a new constitution that guaranteed adult suffrage the party won a landslide victory in April of 1953, and that surprised the British. According to recently released MI5 documents, Churchill decided to act, writing to his colonial secretary, and I quote, we ought surely to get American support in doing all that we can to break the communist teeth in British Guiana." Six months after the elections, In October 1953, Churchill suspended the constitution and launched a military operation codenamed Operation Windsor. He sent the warship HMS Superb to Guyana at the head of a military occupation force of hundreds of British troops for an occupation lasting more than three years. During my years at QC, This occupation and the political events surrounding it were always in the background and sometimes in the foreground because the barracks that housed the British troops was less than a mile from QC and the soldiers, they always traveled with their rifles obviously visible. There was a new level of debate about ideology, colonialism, nationalism, and Caribbean identity, and these discussions permeated the school. One reason for our interest was that both Jagon and Burnham were old boys of QC. Burnham's name was etched on a revered honor board for outstanding scholarly achievement that was mounted in our auditorium. There was one board for Guyana scholars, and then there was another board for old boys who had perished in the Great War. Uh, and also in World War II. Another reason, I think, for our interest in the debates was that many of us in the entering class in 1953 were from, from the poorer classes that did not have access to QC in previous years. Remember, this year, 1953, was the coronation year for Queen Elizabeth II. And as part of the celebrations, the crown granted a generous number of coronation scholarships to the colonies. These were given to those who had qualified on the scholarship exam, that is, those who had done well enough to be admitted to QC and other top schools, but with only a partial scholarship. So the result was a kind of educational enfranchisement analogous to the adult suffrage that was put in place that same year. Incidentally, about 40 years later, during Stanford's centennial campaign, we wanted to enhance the vital work of our teaching assistants in H&S, and We found a donor who was willing to help us. Us here refers specifically to Tom Wasow, Dean of Undergraduate Studies and Associate Dean of HNS. Michelle Marinkovic, I see Michelle here, uh, Director, of the Center for Teaching and Learning and myself. When it was time to name the program, my mind flashed back to those Carnation Scholarships, noting that they celebrated a historic moment, not a donor. Our donor said she liked the idea. Uh, I don't know if she's, Joan, Joan is Joan here? Uh, no, anyhow. It's Joan Lane, the donor. She said she liked the idea. The deans of engineering, my good friend Jim Gibbons and Art Sciences, I think it was Gary Ernst at the time, they signed on quickly. and So we launched the Centennial Teaching Assistant Awards Program for all TAs who teach undergraduates at Stanford. Back to QC. The curriculum there was the same as that Uh, at a good British grammar school, including Latin, a large dose of British history and geography, and the annual production of whichever Shakespeare play was in the syllabus for O levels in English literature that year. All the colonies had a few schools like this, with Trinidad, Barbados, and Guyana having more than the others. In fact, there's one school in Little St. Lucia that produced two Nobel Prize winners, Sir Arthur Lewis in economics in 1979, and Derek Walcott in literature 1992. In addition at QC, we started getting teachers who had studied at the newly founded University of the West Indies in Jamaica. One of them, Mr. Moore, taught us West Indian history, even though this was not a subject on our O-levels exam. And he introduced us to radical texts and to the art of debating. And then possibly to maintain our interest, this is a boys' school. He would often tell us stories that conjured up an image of uv as an Elysian plane populated with beautiful women and a place to which we All should intend to go after QC. In the year leading up to O levels, the principal, an Englishman named Mr. Sangha Davies, felt that I was good enough at mathematics that given some extra instruction in physics and chemistry during that year, I would be able to jump from the classical stream to the modern or science stream without missing a beat. On entering the lower sixth modern form, I remember telling my mother, um, You know, I won't be uh, as good as I used to be, relatively, because I'm now competing with boys who had done science for two years more than me. And therefore, she should expect me to play somewhere around 10th in a form of about 30. That's how we were very good at placing ourselves, because we used to be ranked frequently, and you knew who was number one, who was number two. This is a, it's a Caribbean thing, in those days, at least. As I said, we used to be ranked every half term, and the top three students in each form would be named at a plenary assembly, yeah, I think it was Wednesday mornings. At the first half term, the principal got to lower Six modern and reported Lower six, modern, first, EAC Thomas, second, well, I couldn't hear much else. Such, such was my shock. <laughs> it turned out that I figured I would get a B in pure mathematics, but Mr. Whitaker gave me an A, and that makes a lot of difference in their standings. When I went to his desk that day to pick up my exercise book, it was a pink, pink was mathematics, gray was Latin, and so on to pick up my exercise book, he said to me, Thomas, this may not be the grade you deserve, but it's the grade I think you're capable of getting. (laughs) So now coming first among boys that we refer to as the science dogs, coming first was a big deal. And on my way back to my desk, I remember telling my smiling self that I was not going to let Mr. Whitaker down. This was the first time that I remember planning to excel at mathematics and actually taking extraordinary measures to do so. For example, we used to get our textbooks free from the school. They have to pay. But I heard that the math textbooks they were using at a Catholic high school since Stanislaus College were much better than our textbooks. As luck would have it, the sister of a friend had bought the books and then she changed her mind about doing A-levels. And so she wanted to sell the books and she was going to give a discount. So I did something I'd never done before, which was to use my precious savings from, you know, I used to get $2 a month from my father and then I used to run errands for the home that I stayed at and you'd keep the change. And I think they were deliberately generous in using large notes for me to go and pay a bill. So the change would be a dollar and so on, you know. So so I had some money. I used these savings to buy the books. Then we had a classmate named Kunar. He had a father who went to London on long leave. That was a system where civil servants would get six months leave towards the end of their career and they'd go to, I always went to London. You didn't go to New York. I don't think they would pay for you to go to New York. Uh, So he went to London and he would buy past A-level papers, exams at the Senate House in Bloomsbury. Some of you might know that place and then send them down to Guyana. I heard about this and so I worked out an arrangement with Kunar whereby he would lend me these past exam papers, and in return, I would show him my solutions whenever he couldn't get out a problem. (laughs) We became good friends as a result. Uh, He actually trained as a geophysicist. Uh, Only two months ago, a mutual friend emailed me to say that Kunar went back to QC to address a conference on the Guyana Shield oil reserves that Exxon found a few years ago. I don't know if you know, Rex Tillerson is a very popular guy in Guyana. And the day that he was uh, appointed uh, secretary uh, of state, he was supposed to be in Guyana that same day to to, uh, sew up this arrangement uh, that Exxon has with our uh, huge oil reserves. Anyhow, Kunar was, uh, he's an expert. And he was talking about uh, how we should approach uh, these oil reserves. In fact, I see Roger Knoll And Roger had helped me prepare for meeting the Minister of Economic Development last November. I want to thank you for that. Of course, the minister said, Thomas, may I go back to California? We want you to be living here in Guyana to take you seriously. And that, that was the outcome of that. But still, it was good to be able to, to tell him what the experts at Stanford think about, um, uh, Saving national savings of, of oil uh, revenue. So Kunar started his talk and sadly, according to this email, less than five minutes into the talk, he had a heart attack. Right there in the auditorium of our alma mater. We we're still trying to figure out what to make of the symbolism. Let me say two other things about QC and then we have to move on. The first, is that there was another influential math teacher, Mr. N. E. Cameron, an Afro-Guyanese. He was the Guyana scholar in 1921. He went off to read mathematics at Fitzwilliam College in Cambridge, and he graduated as a senior optime, which means second class honors, in 1925. When he returned to Guyana, he wasn't allowed to teach at his alma mater because of the color prejudice that is endemic in the Caribbean. And so he started his own high school. Eventually he was hired at QC. And what I remember most was his telling us, you you, you have to have a literary flair when doing mathematics. He meant that mathematical symbols stood for words and phrases and that, therefore, a mathematical proof should read like proper logical English. And if it's ungrammatical, almost certain you're talking nonsense. That was his approach. I have tried to pass on this precept to my students here, even extending it in my statistics class, to say that Beneath every correlation, there are always two or more interesting causal stories. I didn't believe in this truism, but laziness of saying, "Oh, correlation doesn't imply causation, and so I'm not going to give you a causal model. I said, no, 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 that's intellectual laziness. I want to see a causal model. So I would give students extra credit on on quizzes, up to say 1 or 2 percent of the points. For inventing such stories after their calculations, no matter how implausible they might be. The last thing about QC is that our principal, Mr. Sanger Davies, was a Cambridge man, and he had a good friend, Mr. Welford, who was the senior tutor at St. John's College. So for at least the three Guyana scholars around my time, all it took for us to be admitted to St. John's was a letter from Sangers to Welford saying that Thomas or Rupert the Rhine or Ramsahoy was a good chap. <laughs> but Cambridge couldn't compete with the glamor and immediacy of the Elysian field that had been beckoning from Mona, Jamaica for about four years. UWE gave me an open scholarship in 1960, and I went there armed with the advice that if I were to study engineering, you'd you'd, uh, approve of this, Jane, I would have many job opportunities. Whereas if I studied mathematics, the only job I could get would be in teaching, meaning high school teaching. When I repeated this advice to the head of department, Professor Robinson, he said to me, you work which subject you really like, engineering or mathematics. So I said mathematics, to which the professor replied, I think you should study the subject that you like. I was very relieved and signed up for the three year diet of mathematics. There was a small hiccup at the end of my first year when I got a letter from St. John's College informing me that I was admitted to read for my BA in mathematics. Panic, rather than joy, was the dominant emotion because UV had lived up to its billing and I I was not about to give it up. But neither did I want to give up admission to St. John's because I had the requisite funding, namely the Guyana Scholarship, which I was keeping in cold storage, as it were. So I wrote to Mr. Welford, asking him if I could defer matriculation until the receipt of my BSc degree from UE, at which time I would come to St. John's to do my PhD. Now, before writing that letter, I had not given any thought to what would happen after the B.S.C. And I definitely had never explicitly thought of doing the Ph.D. This idea of doing the Ph.D. at St. John's was merely a gambit. It was something that might allow me to have my cake and eat it. Welford's reply was a model of courtly foreshadowing that I have found useful in my own letters over the years he wrote that he would hold my place as requested and that if I were to do as well at UE as I was expected to do, he would be delighted to welcome me as a postgraduate student in 1963. As well I was expe- as I was expected to do. Now, how else was I to interpret that but that I needed to get a first-class honors at UE. That was the only safe interpretation. Luckily, I already had this tactic of working through past exam uh, papers. It had led to success at A-levels, and so I used it again with equally favorable uh, results. The transition to Cambridge was not smooth. I'm sorry. We are, I meant to leave 15 minutes for questions. I'm gonna have to, i gonna have to run through. I'm sorry. The transition wasn't smooth. Soon after I got there, I told Mr. Welford that I wanted to enroll in the PhD program in statistics rather than in the legendary part three of the mathematical tripos as has been uh, assumed. Mr. Welford sent me to David Kendall, the professor of statistics, who then set up a meeting between me and Miss Kane, a lecturer in the department, and Kendall stressed that Miss Kane is the only person available for supervising my research. So I went to see her. She described her research, her interest in mathematical models of the brain and in the particular observation about incubation time of quail eggs. Uh, it, 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 if you're interested in measuring the time it takes for a nest of fertilized eggs to hatch, uh, you could put a fertilized egg two days after the, the original nest started, and that late egg hatches the same time as the rest of the eggs. If you put an unfertilized egg in the nest, it slows down the whole thing. So she concluded that it was as if these eggs are communicating with each other like neurons affecting, you see, mathematical models of the brain, uh, and, uh, uh, and that the unfertilized egg just slows down the communication. And then at the end of it, she said, Mr. Thomas, do you think you'd be interested in working on these issues? <laughs> now, by that time, my head was spinning. I had never heard the word model. I couldn't conceive of how you could apply mathematics to neurons in the brain or incubation time for for, for quail eggs. But I knew that she was the only person who could supervise me. So I said to her, the work is fascinating. (laughs) I would love to work with you. (laughs) Then outside of the classroom, I found that my classical education was deficient as well. I couldn't understand, for example, how one of the other PhD students could spend a whole coffee break talking about the history of the English penny. (laughs) For me, the easiest conversations were those in which I was asked about myself or about Guyana, as happened one night on the train from London to Cambridge. The elderly gentleman in my cabin was genuinely interested in Guyana, in our racialized politics affecting Afro and Indo-Guyanese, our schools and so on. And I was only too happy to oblige. When it was my turn, I asked him what he did for a living. And he said he was a writer. This was the first writer I had met in my life. And all I could think of to say was, oh, that's, that's interesting. What's your name? To which the gentleman with some diffidence replied, Forster. <laughs> uh, so I, I pressed on. Oh, oh, I um, don't think I've read any of your books. Could, could you give me a title for one of them? So he replied, maybe the one you're most likely to have heard about is Passage to India. So I said, ah, no, no, I, I haven't, heard of, haven't heard of it. But we ended on a pleasant note, and the gentleman was very sweet about it all. Some days later, I recounted this incident to one of my QC buddies who was reading modern languages at John's. He was incredulous, even embarrassed on my behalf, that I had never heard of E.M. Forster. Then when I added that Forster had invited me to visit his rooms at King's College, my friend snickered in reply, well, Tom, you know he likes his boys. It is one of my regrets that that snicker was enough to thwart my intention to visit the great novelist. Reading all of his novels has been a rewarding but insufficient substitute. Some key elements of my research habits were set at Cambridge. I developed a facility with models and modeling that was fueled by Professor Kendall's view that a simple incomplete model that you understand is better than a complex, more complete model that you do not understand. Further, my supervisor, Ms. Kane, had friends who were ethologists and psychologists, and they often consulted with her on data analysis. So by the time I got there, she had collected quite a few unopened folders. And one day she said, Mr. Thomas, could you look at one of these folders here and and help my friend? Miss Margaret Vince was her name. And that is how I came to develop a facility with the analysis of behavioral data in a range of disciplines. And this facility in turn helped me land a postdoctoral position in the psychology department at University College London. London in the late 1960s was the most exciting place. Yet one afternoon in early 1969, I was walking down Tottenham Court Road when the thought uh, occurred to me unbidden that I really needed to be in the United States. The research papers I was reading had addresses like Stanford, California, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Philadelphia, PA, and I felt I needed to be there rather than in London. Also there was only one black professor that I knew of in all of English academic history, and that was Sir Arthur Lewis, whom I mentioned earlier. So I figured that any chances I might have of advancement would be very much better in the United States. This was just a thought. I did nothing about it. However, a few weeks later, my advisor at UCL, Professor Audley, was invited to a conference in Ann Arbor and he couldn't go. But he told them, you know, Thomas would be a, an appropriate replacement for me. This was a stroke of good luck for which I was well prepared after that afternoon on Tottenham Court Road. I went to the conference, met uh, Dave Kranz and Jim Greeno, both professors at Michigan. They took an interest in my work. There was a Vietnam War protest. We discussed the protest. And in that discussion, there was talk about affirmative action at Michigan. They were trying to get black students and faculty. So this new institutional policy at Michigan, the interest shown by Audley, Krantz, and Greeno, and the accidents of time and place, all these combined to produce a job offer, which I accepted and had as a side benefit of this decision, the meeting with my dear wife, Odette, at a West Indian party a few months after I got to Ann Arbor. I told you earlier about meeting Dick Atkinson, and I should add that Stanford at that time had just put in place an affirmative action program. So we had the same mix of factors at Stanford as we had at Michigan. The the outcome was a similarly happy one, allowing Odette and me to move here right after our wedding in 1972. On coming to Stanford, the breadth and quality of my research increased significantly through the interactions of the special collection of students and professors we have here and through the constant support from my expanding family. And I swear there was also a a change of address effect, whereby journal editors, and other researchers I would meet at conferences took my ideas and me more seriously than when I was at Michigan. Uh, I swear to it, but I don't have data. So it will have to remain a conjecture, not a theorem. I can give many, uh, I got some beautiful, uh, examples, but I got to skip them. They could come up later because I don't want to overstate. I must go quickly. Yeah. Oh, keep going. Not necessarily quickly. I could uh, uh, see one, yeah, what was the meaning of this thing, you know? uh, Let me give you the first one. I did some work on parent-infant interaction, and it was inspired by the nighttime interactions I was having with our first child in his first weeks of life. My job was to put him back to sleep after Odette breastfed. And also, right at that time, in the first week of his life, I was giving a lecture in the math psych, in my math psych class, and I started out that course with neural models, models of the brain. So I had a lecture on neurons affecting each other, but it was the second or third year I was giving the lecture, and I wanted to spice it up. And I thought, instead of one cell and one cell, why not baby and parent because I was experiencing it. And that was the, ins- the, the kind of intuition that I got. Then when I gave the lecture with baby and parent instead of neuron one and neuron two, there was a student in the class who said, but I have some data on mothers and their infants. And so we got together and uh, there was a beautiful paper that came out of it. It was my most popular paper. This was the days when people used to write and ask you for reprints so you can count, actually count, not like this Google thing where you got, if you don't know your way around, you can't find out how popular you are. Um, and then a lot of colleagues helped me. Uh, Marlene is here, her husband, Jeff, he and I got some nice work going on currently. John Rickford and I work on model. John is a QC, actually used to be head prefect at QC, but but all his education was was in the States. He didn't have the benefit of the uh, mother country. So we must compare notes sometime, John, and see what um, deficits I possess. (laughs) Uh, Another example, I'm I'm sorry, uh, is that this is now how administration uh, affects you positively. I, I was chair and, and I got appointed uh, to the A&P committee, the appointments and promotions committee. And so in the lunch line before the meeting started, I was standing next to Mark Feldman. He said, what are you doing these days? I told him, I had this nice idea. Well, all ideas are nice really um, on uh, a game theoretic model. He said, that's interesting. Let's work on it. And two papers came out of that. So these examples illustrate that one can list compartments of life, like family, research, teaching, administration. But in my life, there has been a mutually reinforcing interdependence among the compartments, and I do not view them as functionally separate. One quick value that I got from my colleagues in the department. I- I'm gonna have to allow you guys to leave because I know Iris got dinner. So you can leave um, right, rather than, you know, all right. right. Or you can stay, right, right. But, but, but please Ives, don't feel bad. Uh, a value I inherited from my colleagues in, in the psychology department, I think it's important. It transcends compartments and it traveled well from the department to the dean's office. It is the expectation of intellectual leadership by our faculty, and even by our graduate students and the emphasis on finding one's voice as a scholar. The main ingredient of leadership is, and I think at least, an emphasis on theory and on theory-driven analyses of issues where the issue might relate to a text, an ethical dilemma, a scientific or technological problem, a data matrix, which is my um, wheelhouse, etc. I approve of this emphasis, although it took some uh, getting used to. At one of my first faculty meetings in the department, we were discussing changes to some aspect or other of graduate education. And the meeting was showing signs of degenerating, as sometimes happens when the chair, same Dick Atkinson, said, come on, my friends, let's keep in mind that whatever we decide here today will be emulated by departments all over the country. To my ears at the time, that sounded a touch hubristic. So I looked at Dick, I looked at everybody else in the room to see if there was irony that was intended. I was shocked to find none. That was my introduction to the assumption of leadership that permeates not just my department, but the entire university. Norm Wessels, Dean of HNS, appointed me associate dean in 1986. My three years as department chair, interacting with cognizant deans like Bill Chase, gave me a good idea of what I did and didn't like about the dean's office. Then Because of of my interactions with a remarkable group of program and department heads, my two years as associate dean provided further instruction in how to be an effective dean. I'll give you one example. I remember Diane Middlebrook giving me a tutorial on the burgeoning list of meanings of the term mother depending on who owned the egg, who owns the sperm, bears the child and so on and on the ethical and legal and cultural issues raised by these new possibilities. This was in 1987 but I was as awestruck then as I was in my first conversation with Miss Kane two decades earlier. Jim Sheehan explained in another such meeting why you need a Senate. I was telling him that this is a waste of time. You should abolish the Senate. He said you work You might think we don't need it now because these are calm halcyon days. But imagine if we had a crisis, it would be too late then to invent a Senate. So that's why you got to have this thing. And it's funny, within a couple of years, I would remember that pearl of wisdom as we were fighting with budget tightening. I see Peter Stansky here, so I got to mention this story. Peter, you can hear? Yeah. The physics department was on record as experiencing neglect from the dean's office. They were anxious to embark on an ambitious hiring plan, and they were unhappy that their cognizant dean, Peter Stansky, took pride in his limited knowledge of the discipline. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure if they regarded the substitution of a psychologist for a historian as an upgrade But I can report that the interactions with Sandy Fetter, the department chair, the ones he had with me, and then later with Brad Efron, who replaced me, were constructive and rigorous, and we agreed on a long-term hiring plan that paved the way, I think, for the rich harvest of Nobel Prizes the physics community garnered in the 1990s. But perhaps the best introduction, the best tutorial I had on being dean was meeting this my good friend Jim Gibbons. I got to tell you the story. One day uh, we had this trustee meeting. And when the trustees come to town, everybody put on the suit and on you know, your best behavior, on your thing. And I, uh, dean, newly dean of of HNS, I got all the big classes. Roger had an econ one class. Then Katchadourian had a human sexuality with nine hundred people. So, you know, I know I got the undergraduates. That's my thing. Jim got up before the trustees and in giving his pitch on the School of Engineering and why they must get all the resources, not even a third, but all. (laughs) He said to them, engineering has the largest undergraduate course at Stanford. I said, what? How you could lie like that? (laughs) But it turns out that CS106A was the largest undergraduate course. And in talking to Jim afterwards, he became a mentor rather than a competitor very, very quickly. A very generous fellow, Jim Gibbons is. He taught me how to be uh, a, a, an advocate, uh, w- what kind of rhetoric works, uh, what kind of, of, of approaches work. And I really want to thank you. That, for me, was a great lesson in how to be a dean. Uh, yes, uh, please, don't, don't try. So. One Friday, um, Jim Ross called me, he was provost, uh, to come to his office in Building 10. There was an ongoing search for the replacement for Norm Wessels, uh, and I assumed that Jim wanted my input. Without any preamble, which was quite unusual, Jim was a, I think he was a Midwestern guy, very, very nice guy, but no preamble. He said, "You were, I want you to be the next mm-hmm. dean of HNS. And I replied approximately, approximately, oh sugar, Jim, I'm I'm very happy as an associate dean. Why you don't offer the job to Wally Falcon? Wally was senior associate dean, responsible for budget planning, and in a sense, he was next in line. Jim seemed a little irritated by my reply and proceeded to explain uh, that, you know, there was a very favorable report from the search committee of which John Rickford was a member. Then he said, you know, when he announced the decision to the advisory board, this is a group of mostly old men, they stood up and cheered, and he had never seen anything like this in his life. All of this is to impress me. Eh? So on the ride home on my bicycle there was a blur of emotions, excitement and happiness mixed with apprehension over a host of issues only some of which I could name. Our youngest child was eight years old, the other two were in middle school, and it was clear that the burden of parenting would fall heavily on Odette. We talked about it most of the night, and by the time I left home the next morning to give Jim my decision in person, Odette was able to give me her full blessing uh, to accept. Herbie Lindenberger came to see me, he was my neighbor, but he was also on the advisory board, he said, you know, Jim had forbidden him to call before Saturday morning. Then Don Kennedy, uh, the president, called. Uh, and I remember asking him, what do you say if somebody says, Thomas, what is the mission of liberal education? A uh, liberal education?" I didn't know what you say. Don rattled off a paragraph on the phone. So that kind of eased m- m- me because I knew that if I needed the paragraph, I could just go and ask him again. But we had a lot of help in the, in the office. There was, uh, as I said, the, the paragraphs were written by people like Tom Wassow, Charlie Junkerman, John Cash, and so on. Quick couple of comments on the budget. Uh, Don had written a speech, called, gave a speech called, how can we look so rich yet feel so poor? And one answer was uh, the payout rate was limited, 4%, uh, and so on. Uh, But there was another uh, uh, possibility, and and Jim Ross insisted that he would only give us increases to the base budget if the new funds could be matched by cuts of existing programs uh, within the school. I want to mention the help I got with budget planning. In the first year, the lead was taken by Wally Falcon and Susan Schofield. In later years, by Nancy Paget. Roger Knoll, Carlin Luigi, John Hughes, but every decision we made was based on an office-wide uh, discussion, including people like Ted Anderson, Russell Borman, Ma- Michael Bratman, Al Camarillo, Brad Efron, Sandy Fetter, uh, and Peck, these are the people I haven't already named, Susan Stevens, Judith Kane, Christy Gurky, Kathy Gillum, Ronnie Holton, Joan Lane, Tom Massey, Joan Minor, Jacqueline Wender, and Ellen Woods. Uh, opinions were strong on all sides of issues uh, and I felt that colleagues were using the budget crisis to push their preferred agendas. I felt, for example, that there was a threat to the school and it was a minority opinion repeatedly and carelessly touted that the school was ungovernable and should be broken up. We wrote many paragraphs in support of the view which I held implacably that the unity and integrity of the school must be preserved. Eventually relief came in the form of another structural reform uh, that is breaking, reorganizing, I'm sorry, the school into clusters with a senior associate dean responsible for each cluster. The argument was that this would lead to better, more efficient management. Uh, I felt that there were some disadvantages to the cluster model and I wasn't convinced that these disadvantages were outweighed by the expected advantages, but I realized that the proposed reform would eliminate the pressure to break up the school, and only for this reason did I end up supporting reform. There is one incident I remembered this afternoon after I thought I had finished. Uh, uh, Which one should I choose? Oh, you know, we have a lot of principals in economics and uh, psychology for handling decision-making in the face of uncertainty. The most popular one is that you must you know, do your payoffs and your probabilities and then maximize your expected utility. But when the options are complex, another principle that is useful is that we should try to minimize our maximum loss, the so-called minimax principle. In 1991, we were facing draconian cuts, and I realized that my concern over losing faculty was more precisely a concern over losing key faculty. This was the outcome that represented maximum loss in my mind. And in the spirit of the confessional, I now admit to drawing up a list of 20 to 25 senior faculty, such that if all of them were still at Stanford after the budget cuts, I would consider our actions a great success. This was not a large number, and I made sure that each of these professors was given full access to whatever blandishments our office could provide. There is so much more that I can relate about these years, uh, but we (laughs) we have run out of time. The text here says we are, but we do have. one thing I remember, though, is Halsey coming to my office. Halsey Ryden was the dean before Norm Wessels. And he said to me, you, are, you will have a lot of associate deans to help you, but remember that this is the dean's office, D-E-A-N apostrophe S. The buck stops with you. Uh, maybe some of these things will come up in the Q&A session if we have it. Um. I've often said that the most important and enjoyable perquisite of being dean was the access it gave me to some of the finest minds in the world. I remain grateful for the intellectual growth I experienced during those years. After the meeting office, I found my teaching more rewarding than before. And in general, the 20 plus years leading up to my retirement last year have provided ample evidence of a kind of reciprocity whereby, as one has given, so too, in some form or other, one is receiving. Of course, this is the sound financial principle that undergirds our retirement plans. But I'm referring here to something that feels less like just desserts and more like a gift. There is the occasional letter from former students that never fails to warm the heart. Mostly, though, I feel a sense of thankfulness for the support Stanford University has given me and my family for nearly half a century. These years have been coincident with my shared life with Odette, my dear wife, best friend, and the love of my life. She is here on her own behalf, but also as the much-loved matriarch of the three-generational unit that includes our children, Tika Thomas, Tecita Tormela, and her husband, Zach Tormelo, and Tolu Thomas and his wife, Christina Sandoval, and our grandchildren, Amalia and Naya Tormula, and Gabriela and Pablo Thomas. My family is an unending source of joy in my life, and it has been a wonderful life. When I was a small boy in my nurturing village of Ryehead, they would have humored me if I had dreamed in broad strokes of living the life that I have lived, they would have thought to themselves that reaching the sky is impossible. But that, as my father used to say, if you aim for the sky, you you might reach the clouds, which ain't bad. But the extension of those broad strokes is precisely the lived life that I have tried to explain this afternoon. If you now believe that the conditional probability of this lived life, given the reported actions of many helpful people and of serendipity, if this conditional probability is much greater than the prior probability of the life, then that would be proof enough of the validity of my explanation. If, however, my explanation falls short of this criterion, Then we can still marvel at how, given the infinitely many branching points of a typical life, patterns that are virtually impossible are observed at least once. Thanks for your kind attention.
0: Thank you so much Jort, for a talk that is both brilliant and funny and insightful and full of anecdotes that that people smile as they anticipate and experience it uh, we have um, let's say time for two or three questions and Jort, why don't you pick the people and answer uh, Pam Moore has um, a microphone which you'll have which you'll pass around who'd like to
2: Thirsty,
3: John. Um, Professor Thomas, um, since you mentioned both Sangadevi's and uh, places in school, the place you came in school, uh, it's not so much a question, but I wanted to make a comment. That barely when I was about in my third form, said uh, Mr. Sangadevi's called me in and drew a graph of what had happened to my placement since I entered the school. And he showed that I was like second in my first year and I had, I think, dropped to about fourth or fifth in my second year and that I was now seventh or eighth. And he asked me a statistical kind of question, what's wrong with this graph? I said it looked perfectly fine to me. Uh, But he said, no, it's going in the wrong direction. (laughs) And he then selected from his rack of (laughs) canes one that was appropriate for me and proceeded to cane me. So I always hear to them afterwards that. But I must say, my graph changed in the opposite direction, and that's probably why I'm here today. So, thank you for reminding me of those
1: days. Thanks.
2: People are thirsty. I, uh, yes, sir.
3: This professor told you that, uh, you know, I'm going to give the grade that you can get as opposed to the one you deserve. Have you ever done that yourself? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, yeah. it is pretty difficult to do, isn't it? No, no. Because what about the other students? No, it's not difficult. Tell me.
2: I, I mean, um, we are among friends. Uh, nobody's going to jack me up in court. <laughs> I remember once uh, Letitia Valdez was in my class. This would have been seventy-seven, seventy-eight, 78. And uh, she used to sit in the front row, right there, in 040 in psychology. And some days she would come with a little baby. This is nine o'clock. Every day we used to meet five days a week, nine o'clock. So statistics. Uh, and so, you know, you got to ask them how you do. Every Thursday, I would give back the quiz. Tuesday was the quiz, I gave it back on Thursday. And she is at 88, 91, 82, 94, okay? And 90 is the a, a. And at the end of the quarter, Leticia gets, I'm making this number up, 89.1, that's a B plus. I say like, That woman came to my office and said, Professor Thomas, this is the first A I've gotten at Stanford. I felt good about giving Leticia an A. So that's why I say it wasn't hard. And you know, I know that I could probably get jacked up in the fundamental standard, something, something, but (laughs) I always remember that woman. Yes.
3: I'm curious, uh, hearing your wonderful talk, whether uh, how much your father got to appreciate, and how long did he live to see what he, you've accomplished?
2: Right. He actually saw our first home in Menlo Park. That's the criterion I use. He died the next year, but he saw that home. He attended commencement in 1973. Um, He had his flaws. eh? He he was limited in a lot of ways, and I've had to come to terms with those, but I I owe a lot to him. And Yes, thanks for asking. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah, thanks for asking. You said
0: you were at the end of your talk that you love to receive letters from former students, and those of us who've taught have that experience of exaltation when unbidden letter comes our way from somebody who thanks us think of your own talk as as wonderful letters of thanks to all those people who taught you mm. all the way from primary school on i mean it's just a a letter of gushing letters of thanks to those people they're no longer alive but how wonderful it would be for them to be alive and to hear your uh, your, your emotional uh, yeah. credit to them for the way they helped your own life to advance.
2: And those in the dean's office. Uh, uh, Roger, I used to hustle and fight and thing, you know, you know, but he's bigger than me so at a certain point. Actually. Yeah. But without those, that help in the dean's office, Al Camarillo, uh, Jim Gibbon helping me give, get access to the guy in Washington who had the railroad thing. He was an engineering guy, and Jim wouldn't want to lose me on him. But eventually, you know, we got a little something from him—maybe a chair, uh, language corner. it was. <laughs> Yes. yes. Uh, so, so thanks to those people too.
0: Thank you, Ort, Yort. And now we will have a lovely reception and, and meet our speaker.
2: <laughs> well, that was that terrific.